but it's kind of a tie. There. I would like to it's file a, a formal complaint because I've heard <laughs> I know, him I know. talking about total rebounds no, versus rebounding percentage for 20 years. I know. No, no, no. I, I was. We, I was <laughs> There's we no secrets ball. left in this family. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the father-son coaching duo for the WNBA's Washington Mystics, Mike and Eric Tebow. The Tebow family is here today to discuss season resets, defending baseline and sideline out of bounds, and we talk attacking switches and misleading stats during a special edition of Start, Sub, or Sit. This episode is brought to you by our partners at Fast Model Sports. Their Fast Draw Playbook software is a great resource for coaches to build and organize their plays and drills. We use Fast Draw on a daily basis to create and share featured playbooks in our Sunday morning newsletter. And along with Fast Draw, we use Fast Scout with our teams for detailed scouting reports, key stats, and to share video with players and staff. Listeners of our podcast can now receive 15% off all Fast Model products when they use the code SGPOD15. That's 15% off all Fast Model products with the code SGPOD15. Visit slappingglass.com for more information today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Mike and Eric Tebow. Coaches, thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you today. Great to hear you. Great to see you. Thanks, guys. Coaches, we wanted to start with the topic of, and Mike, I know you and I talked about this a little bit, but is a reset. The offseason and preseason after a year in which there was some struggle. And I know last season there was a lot of injuries and whatnot, and you guys weren't at the level that you are usually at. And so this offseason, you're working on getting back to the playoffs and, and being a contender. And so how you and the staff are thinking about resetting for next year, tactically, mentally, emotionally, all those things? Well, for us, that's a really big project in the sense that, you know, we have a core group of players that are still in the prime of their careers. And, you know, two years ago when we won the championship, we were hoping to kind of carry it over and add a little bit and, you know, tweak a few things. And then the pandemic hit and four players didn't play the next summer and another one got hurt. So we had to kind of rethink a little bit a year ago and we thought we had done some of the right moves. We made a huge offseason free agency acquisition in Alicia Clark. And then it turns around that she doesn't play this year. She gets hurt overseas. Clearly the best player in our organization, Elena Deladon, sat out. So a lot of what we have to think about is in relationship to, there's two parts to it. Number one, you know, we know we're going to probably get them back, hopefully at full strength. So you don't want to fix some things that maybe really aren't broken because they will help fix that in and of themselves. But the other part of it, and we've talked a lot about is what if they don't play or what if there's injuries and, you know, where are we with that? And I think that's a tough position to be in because, you know, if somebody were to tell me, hey, they're not going to play again. I think our whole approach might be a little bit different. You know, we might be at a rebuild, but we have to go and assume that we're going to have our core group and that we're going to build to a point the way we headed into last season and, you know, hope for better health. From a basketball X and O standpoint, I mean, we've been talking, and I'll let Eric talk about it a little bit more, 
we're trying to say, okay, what trends are we looking at that we can adjust defensively and offensively? And I'll let you kind of, you know, carry off from there. I think when you said reset at the end of the year, you said it with our players as well. What jumped out to me was we kind of got to redefine a little bit who we are. We clearly had a set of values and shared beliefs as a group when we won in 2019. And probably because of circumstances and roster flux and all that, we haven't maybe been as in tune to those or carried those as strongly the last couple of years. It's just been difficult. And maybe this year, even we felt we waited a little bit too long to revisit some of those things. So part of it is just getting back to having an identity, which is on the court, but also just in our locker room. You know, we have some core players that were here, but we've got new faces that have had success other places. So figuring out what everybody brings to the table, what we believe in as a group. I think that's part of our reset going into next summer. Eric, if I can throw this to you, you guys, when evaluating the last season and having discussions about this reset or moving forward, how do you determine looking back, like what was broken or maybe what was a problem and what was just the circumstances that you were missing your best player and that gap, that void is going to be filled when she comes back? You can't like just take one without the other, I don't think. I think if we look back and say, okay, if we had been healthy, Even then you're going to self-analyze. And I think just taking feedback from players at the end of the year, discussion that we had amongst our staff after the season, just taking a look back and saying, okay, if we knew the situation was exactly the same, if we're going to have injuries, if it was going to be up and down in terms of the roster, what could we have done differently? And I think maybe even I feel like we tried to steady the ship a little bit too much and just to stay positive and try to, you know, just hang in with everybody. We actually got some feedback from players like, Maybe you need to go at us a little harder. And it's tough as a coach. You're like, man, we don't know who was playing every day. We're just trying to keep everybody on a good emotional, even keel. But then we have some of our main players like, no, you can go at me more. Mm-hmm. You can really hold me to a standard, even when we're a little bit of a mess. And I thought that was, you know, good leadership after the season from some of our players. The other part that fed into that, and they, you know, talking about coaching them harder, maybe a little bit. When we had all the injuries, we literally went for two months without a full team to practice. We never had 10 of our players to practice. And so we tried as coaches to balance rest and minutes. And we didn't have male practice players until after the Olympic break started. And the feedback to Eric's point was that even so in trying to balance rest versus work, we might've needed to go at them a little bit more, go a little longer, a little harder. And yet as coaches, we were looking at, you know, three on three practices a lot of days and go, well, how do we go much harder than that? And that was probably the toughest balance for us all season. I mean, every morning, literally we're asking our trainer who can go today and how long can they go? And then I think that probably kind of spooked us a little bit as far as what we could do. I think that what what I take from it now is take that going into next year when you have hopefully a healthy team with more of your key players and that, oh no, they have a willingness to be coached to be held to whatever we decide as a group are our standards. I think it's hard if you don't feel like you have players that you can push, but I don't think that's the case for us. And I think that makes kind of everything we do easier knowing that they're willing, they're in that space with us. So in 2019, you guys won the WNBA title. And, you know, last season, obviously with injuries and whatnot, you guys were not in the playoffs. And I'm wondering about the similarities or differences in your off seasons. You know, when you're trying to stay hungry, you're looking at what works, what doesn't work coming off of a championship season versus a season where you didn't make the playoffs and your the motivations for you personally as a staff and kind of what you're looking at from that standpoint. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is, I think even it's easy to look back at everything that's happened and say, maybe that didn't happen after the championship season, but that's actually not how I felt. I felt we were hungry then. We went and got Tina, like coach said. We had players in the building getting ready to go, and then everything just stopped. Yeah. 
Now, I will say this offseason, it kind of feels so far like we are ramping back up to where we've had a couple players in the building. Even after the season, there was a noticeable discussion among our players about they need to start getting on the same page now. Those core guys that were here, they've been making an effort to connect more. Elena referenced, I believe, the last dance and how, you know, after the Bulls lost to the Pistons, they really kind of rallied back together that offseason. So I think even though people are in different places, some people are overseas, coaches, a couple of us are here, a couple of us are out of town. You get that sense like, okay, no, we need to put some things right. Yeah. This group needs to figure out who it can be because... I would say it's a noticeable energy from the ones we have here right now, and, and we're certainly feeling it. It's funny, the day after the season, because I still couldn't come into the office because I had finished the season with COVID, but we had a coach's staff meeting. And I think to a person, the last month of the season just had been kind of miserable from, you know, just everywhere around me, I mean, with the COVID stuff and with, you know, injuries and how we were playing. And I felt like our staff, the minute this past season was over, had a little bit of a energy rebirth to say, okay, we have something positive to look forward to. We can fix this. The whole thing is not broken. And so I would say, you know, it's a different kind of energy than after you win it, but it's still a great energy to say, okay, you know, here's a challenge in front of us. I like challenges. Yeah, I mean, it's like a matter of pride. I'm yeah. like, no, we're not like that's not who we're going to be. We're not going to be that that group that just kind of moves to the finish line. And, and those players felt it too. I mean, to Eric's point, Elena was like talking about, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we got to do. You know, she and Alicia Clark and Tasha are having you know conversations about you know we can be better at that. That's a good sign when your players are actively involved in you know like, hey, you know, we can fix this. Kind of staying on, I guess, these tactical conversations you have is looking at last season when you guys had the injuries and obviously the success wasn't there. What were then the tactical approach in the middle of the season? Were you looking to make pivots or was it, you know, we got to kind of stay the course and just keep working? You know, how do you approach the middle of the season when things aren't going the way the success isn't quite there? Well, I think we had a unique season because we had Olympic break last year. So it was interesting. When we got to the Olympic break, we tried to do a reset then as far as, you know, how we practiced, you know, we were playing without our Olympic players. So that made a difference. But we turned around one day during the Olympic break and we said, we got five players out here right now practicing that never were here for training camp. So we basically went back to training camp basics mm -hmm. and back to, you know, to start from day one. We had players that missed the first two weeks of the season, never had a training camp. And so the basics of our team, and especially for the ones who had never played for us before, you know, you don't normally have that luxury. The problem is, you know, we did all that. And then some of them still got hurt or were hurt. And yeah. it was hard. I think, you know, you can't do a complete reset, but we tried to get back just to fundamental things. You know, be a better shell defensive team, be a better blockout team, do those things. Clearly, no. you know, we didn't markedly improve. It's yeah. tough. Like, it's one of those things. We come yeah. out and we actually play pretty well coming out of the break. Right. We had defended well. We were in Vegas. We're up big. And we gave up leads, I think, in our first two games, a big lead the first game. So, you know, that probably discourages some of the group a little bit. But, yeah, we saw we had to work more on, you know, you get to that point in the season and Tina Charles is getting double teamed. Yeah. We're getting switched on more. Like we had to spend more time probably playing against switching also as part of the development for a couple of our guards. So trying to work that in as much as you can with limited practice time is tough, but yeah. that's probably a, something we need more it, time on going forward. It was interesting. We were watching, we were at the Bucks wizards game last night and we were talking about something we talk about regularly. In the NBA, you know, there's a lot of switching going on defensively. And in the NBA... You don't have a ton of great post-up players right now. 
And so the guards in the NBA are basically just deciding they're going to attack the switches against the bigs to try to draw a second defender. In our league, it's a little bit different. You still have some really legitimate good post-up players. And so when the switching occurred, you have to deal with both offensively and defensively, you know, where do we go? Which mismatch is better? And you need to figure that out, and then teams double the mismatch. Mm-hmm. That's the progression in our league that's you know even a little bit more sophisticated. And then finding guards that actually can make people pay. And I think you know that's a discussion we're having as part of you know where we go down the road. There is more and more switching in basketball in general, but particularly in the pros. And how do we get better? I think that's an ongoing discussion for us. Is how do we get better? doing it defensively and attacking it offensively. On that note, I know that switching is on the minds of coaches everywhere as it's kind of risen as a defensive tactic. And you mentioned something interesting about how still with great post players in the WNBA that you'll try to play through those posts rather than, like you said, sometimes in NBA, like we'll just boomerang it back and play through the guard and make a play. Right. How do you work on the balance of when there is a switch and you want to duck it into the post to attack the switch of pulling it out, maybe letting them post and almost halting your offense for a second to play through the switch versus just letting it come out in the wash and kind of keep running your flow, the balance of those two things. That's like a gray area that we really had, especially a couple of years ago when we won, we really had to get comfortable with that. And I think, especially with Elena and we had Emma Meesman at the time, we probably tilted more towards posting switches But what we had to get good at was getting into our offense quickly because what we got a lot was like, you know, teams would triple switch, right? They'd switch and then they'd bump out their smaller defender so they could get a big on Elena, which was still okay for us. But we actually would end up getting post-ups on the second side with our other post player with the guard that got kicked out of the the mismatch. So, but can't do that if you're fighting the shot clock. So a big focus for us was getting into our offense quicker, run a, a drag or a step up or something on the run and get an early switch so that you got time to play. And like you're saying, you know, for us letting it come out in the wash was maybe Elena gets doubled and is going to swing it and we're going to get the backside. we got a lot of backside threes. Or we're going to we them. Yeah, and we made shots. <laughs> and, and, or, yeah. I mean, this, small detail. It's, it's a small detail, but that year we were one of the best three-point shooting teams in the history of the league. And this year we were in the bottom third in three-point shooting. So right there, there's one of the biggest things right there. We had to spend a lot of time as where we wanted our other big, because, you know, we still, Elena would play the four. So we'd get, you know, we'd have another big on the floor where we wanted to put them. Sometimes for like Emma Meesman, who was a really good three-point shooter, she would find herself at the top of the key. Whereas Latoya Sanders might stay home on that dunker spot on the weak side and wait for hers to leave. And then she'd duck in on the guard. Sure. That was part of just that group had played together for a couple of years. We had gone through playoff series the year before where we saw a lot of switching and kind of worked our way through it. Yeah, it was just like it was a really collective, strong IQ from that group. That's hard. I don't think you can be perfect at it because you can't just say, hey, we're going to post the mismatch every time. And to Um, Eric's point, playing together for a while doing that is a huge thing for any team. I mean, I think you look at the teams that have been historically the best over the last four or five years. In general, they've played their core group together for a while. This is the first year we felt like we got a whole bunch of players that never have played with us before. And out of necessity and signing people late and everything else. And I think that just repetition makes such a huge difference. 
Eric, when they would switch, what were you telling your post players in terms of, were you trying to get that early high seal? Were you telling them just get to your spot and then look to post? I guess what was kind of the next steps you would preach with your team? You're talking about the person who got switched on the big. Yeah, the screener. With Elena and Emma in particular, they're so good at doing a lot of different things. So they would try just to not give the same look all the time. You know, they would get some slip outs early, you know, get to the mid post. Elena got better at being able to use her body to back people down, which was not something she did a lot, maybe as much early in her career. A little bit like the Dirk Nowitzki type stuff from yeah. mid-range and doing stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we would get some high-low, but a lot of times we would get everybody spaced behind the three-point line. So Elena really had to work on being able to kick to the weak side if she felt that double coming. Her passing, I think, opened up a lot of things. Emma Meesman's a great passer. So we just tried to keep the floor as spaced as possible for them. And they were just good at mixing up. We would get some high-low stuff. Yeah. You know, the old school kind of flashed to the high post and high-low. And then we would just be real decisive about, you know, who was going to be a cutter if a double came and who was going to space. And, you know, we were very lucky that we've had, you know, when you put Tina in the mix this year, we've had smart post players who have seen just about every coverage. It was just a matter of who do we want to be the entry passer? Who do we want in the weak side corner? And we could get into that stuff quickly. You got to a point where you didn't have to think about it every possession. I think that really helped. And I think I'll go back to it again. And it's probably, you know, one of the things I've learned more than any other thing coaching is you still need to have the best players. I mean, it sounds, you know, like a really simple cliche, but, you know, Tina Charles was passing out of double teams this year to the same spots on the floor that we were passing out of in 2019. And in 2019, we shot a great percentage from the three. This year, we had five guards or five players who were going to play a fair amount of minutes who shot probably close to career lows in three-point percentage. And so that really hurts you because we got a lot of the same shots, but they weren't either the same people taking them or the same percentages being made. And that destroys kind of your team's confidence in playing out of double teams. And it makes it easier to double. It makes it easier to double. And I think, in fact, we saw at the end of this year – when teams knew we weren't making those shots, Tina literally got triple teamed on a lot of situations. And then it gets frustrating for that post player who's a willing passer to throw it out and then have teammates not make shots. It's just a fact of life. It's just who we were this year. In those situations, were you guys then looking as the season went on to do more cutting, more screening off the ball rather than just trying to space when you're, hey, the shots aren't dropping? How are you trying to solve that situation? We did end up cutting more. It a little bit depended on who the other big was on the floor for us, whether it was the shooting big or whether it was a more of a typical kind of roller dunker spot big. But, you know, we had to be real specific about who was throwing it in as well. And if, you know, a couple of our guards, they were the entry pass, maybe they'd cut right away. and We'd space and fill behind. Mm-hmm. we're having our best one of our best shooters throw it in maybe they'd hold and we cut from from the weak side it was a challenge our lineup changed felt like on a nightly basis and i know that was frustrating mm-hmm. for tina at times it's a good reminder to us too as we look at our roster like coach is saying you better have enough shooting if you're going to have a low post player we didn't screen off the ball that much when we no we not really we didn't do much screening because i think that only confused our passers a little bit in what ways was it confusing your passers with the screening Because I think teams were zoning up the backside and putting people just kind of standing in the lane and trying to stay legal. And so screening away from the ball on the double team, we needed to get away from each other rather than come together. I think when we came together with screens, it was allowing one defender to play two. And we wanted that the passer to be able to see clearly who that defender was helping on and who they weren't. And so if you dove one person rather than screen, if you dove somebody to the weak side dunker spot, then that shooter behind them was clearly open. Yeah. But screening just allowed one defender to guard two a lot. 
And with the post double, what are the specifics you're telling like Tina Charles when they're coming to double? Are you wanting her to kind of pause and wait for it so you can get that, you know, advantage on the backside to kind of take two dribbles off the block to find someone to reverse it to? I mean, what are the maybe some specifics to help her make the right read? I would say, first of all, that, you know, a good post player in that situation has to be able to give the defense a couple different thought processes. And so sometimes, you have to catch it, know it's coming, and be able to go quick before it gets there. I think mm-hmm. there is the idea of ball fake to the cutter and freeze maybe the double team person. As you catch it, here comes the double team ball fake. I think that sometimes you have to actually, once in a while, try to score against the double team. I think sometimes you got to throw it out right away, and repost, relocate, get something on the second side, as Eric mentioned early. I'm not a huge fan of dribbling out from the post unless you you know, you know that you have a cutter and a shooter behind it where you can turn and face up. I think sometimes one of the advantages that both Elena and Emma had and Tina had to some degree is if you faced up sometimes and got people away from them, now you could see the double team coming. I think you can't have just one or two ways. I think you have to be able to do multiple things. But the worst thing you can do is use up your dribble against the double team and now you have nowhere to go. And I think sometimes your players get caught, well, I got to get away from the double team. I'll take a dribble away from it. And then they pick it up and it's worse. And sometimes it's reading how you're being played. Where is the double team coming from? You know, sometimes post up a little higher. So you give yourself the drop step to the baseline or be able to turn and face right away if it's coming from the top side and kick out early and then step in the middle of the lane yourself as the double team's leaving you. That's a constant daily practice thing to get different reads. And it's, you know, I think going forward, if we have more of those post-up situations, we need to have more practice time just on spacing, cutting, and post players working on different ways of getting it out of it. Coach, this has been great so far. We kind of want to pivot just a little bit and discuss now defending special situations, especially baseline sidelines, a full court out of bounds, you know, short clock situations to where you know the teams are going to run you know their best stuff whatever it is and just how you think about trying to defend those types of special situations well i'll give you one little caveat to that so for whatever reason we can't come up with all of it is we have not been a really good on paper efficiency team against side out of bounds and we've been very good against baseline out of bounds I don't know that whether we're just a little more physical. I think part of it's a mental attitude, too, and I think that's on us as coaches to get better. But I think there's too many players, not just our team, but we're probably a prime example, who treat side out of bounds as a quick rest period. And, you know, I think that the best teams defending side out of bounds in our league are ones that try to pressure every single catch. And I thought we got a little bit better as the season went on at doing that. I thought we were a lot more alert, but you have to be active. You have to make somebody go to somewhere else. And I think part of it, sometimes you got players sometimes still thinking about the previous play or the foul they committed, and that's why the ball's out of bounds on the side. I think that that's something we have to address this offseason on the side out of bounds. Some teams in our league invert before the ball is inbounded and then try to switch out off the person defending the inbounds pass. I think that, you know, some teams are zoning a little bit more. We haven't been a consistent zone team for a lot of reasons, but I'll let Eric talk more about the side out-of-bounds. But I think we have become a pretty good baseline defensive out-of-bounds. And part of it is we get up into people on the baseline. We don't, you know, try to back off screens. You know, you're getting a back screen on a screen, the screener. 
I think too many teams get picked off by trying to overhelp. I think you have to physically guide, we'll use the word guide, your offensive player where you'd like them to go and dictate a little bit where they can go and take away certain cuts from them. Yeah, the side out something, you know, we actually last offseason getting ready for this year, spent a little time looking out and really like, you know, everybody's got their little variations, but you get a lot of zipper up high ball screen or you get, you know, at least in our league, the the back screen for the inbounder, either guard, guard, or you have a big take it out. And I think a couple things we tried to do were get more switchable matchups on the ball side if we thought that back screen was coming for the inbounder so that you don't have to get in that situation. Are we, you know, are we trying to bump and then we're late on the screener coming over the top? We tried to get more switchable there, and then we tried to look at just, okay, team's going to call a, a high pick and roll from a side out, and they're going to put your worst post player defender in the screen. What can we do about that? In the playoffs, when we won, we actually ended up being a little bit more aggressive and trapping some of that stuff, when, you know, especially you know it's going to be a short clock Sure. more often than not. You're at 14 or less. But also, can we get maybe in a situation where we don't let the ball change sides of the floor? Can we chase it up and then jam it back, jam it back. into the sideline that it came from? You know, it's definitely something we need to get better at. But I think we've had some success maybe in smaller doses with a couple of those things. I think the other part of it, too, is that the difference in the clock. You know, if it's out in 14 seconds versus 8 seconds or short clock, I think you'll see more teams like us short clock do either aggressive switching or aggressive trapping. I mean, we're looking at doing more of that. I thought we did a better job, not from an out-of-bounds standpoint, but we've spent time this year on teams that ran pick-and-roll or isolations at the end of quarters. We had specific schemes for things like that. I thought, like anything else, the more you practice it, you probably get better. And I think the tendency is you spend all your time on your half-court defense or whatever else, and out-of-bounds plays get ignored a little bit because they're really the same plays teams run as favorite players in high ball screens. And if you're not good at high ball screens, it probably is no different on side out of bounds than it is just a regular half court defense. Eric, I know you mentioned a lot of on the sidelines, a lot of teams will run that zipper and you'll try to force the ball back or prevent the reverse. Are you having them chase over that zipper or cut that zipper so they can get in front of the ball and force them back? It is a tough dilemma because I think we've gotten in trouble sometimes. I think what you're kind of saying, right? Like cut the zipper, go up the inside, go up the lane. Mm-hmm. Is that what yeah. You're- yeah. Go up the lane and meet them. At the pick and roll. Right. But if you cheat it, we've given up, like, teams will bump it right back to the corner if you go too early. So I think as a general rule, we've said chase it up. And even on the catch, if you can kind of, like, overrun it, for lack of a better term, like, overrun it up Mm -hmm. and ice it away from the screen that's coming. But I think we've had success with that when it's been a smart defender, like a Natasha Cloud, who can make the determination, am I forcing them back to their weak hand? Mm -hmm. And so you can have your rules, but then... If you're going to jam somebody right back into their strong hand and a direct line, maybe that's not worth doing. It becomes a scatter report thing a lot of nights. Yeah, and sure. so you kind of got to make sure like whoever you want to guard that primary ball handler has a good game plan in their head for what they want to do. So I don't know. I would say we've not generally cut it up the inside just because I think I don't like As much as I contact. would like to do that, yeah, yeah, I don't, we, deny don't, it. we don't generally like losing yeah. contact at that point in the shot clock. The other thing that's a little different in our league, too, is that, you know, you would love a lot of teams got good at, you know, for a while. And I don't think there's as many doing it now. Taking the inbounders, man, and switching out to that guard coming up and whoever's guarding. The problem with that was is you had good low post offensive players setting that down screen and then sealing on the block. And you kind of want to take your inbounders defender and and prevent that pass. And so you can't do both. That's very difficult. 
I'd like to stay on that because my question for you both, but Mike, we can stay with you here, is just your thoughts on the player guarding the inbounder, whether it's baseline or sideline. If it changes or it's the same in both situations, do you want them pressed up, jumping up and down on the ball? Do you want them off in a passing lane? What if you felt is most successful baseline sideline with the inbounder? Again, we'll go to scatter reports because if we're playing against Brittany Griner or Sylvia Fowles that post up directly, we probably like to use that inbounder to back up more often and take away the direct pass to a post player because teams in our league will throw it there. Not so much in the NBA, but they'll throw it directly to the block. And I think, you know, for those kind of teams, then you have the teams, they use that inbounder as a primary offensive player when it comes in bounds. They're coming on a handoff or they're coming on you know, baseline double screen or triple screen. And so I think on teams like that, we try to get up and direct them where we want them to go. We'll say, you know, if you got a person that comes in on handoffs, we'll try to play on the top side a little bit more and high hands, pressure the pass to the top, and then you try to take away that cut. And so it depends on, you know, the other team's favorite out-of-bounds plays. And if we do a good scouting job, we know what's coming. We have a lot of teams. Minnesota was the best in our league for a while when they had Maya Moore, you know, screening for her as the inbounder on a back screen, cutting to the block. And so you had to play that differently. You didn't want to switch with a small guard, so you had to guide her where you wanted to go. I really do think side out-of-bounds plays in our league are very much game day scouting report decisions on how you want to play. Late game, it's maybe a little different. You know, you want to take away a certain angle of the pass. We might say to a late game situation, we want high hands and don't let it come to the top. We want to force it to the corner, depending on a team's favorite late game plays. Or we might want to take a corner pass away for teams that like to curl and make them throw it to the top. So I think, you know, it's on us as a staff to do a really good scouting job of taking away favorite stuff at the end of games. How about baseline? having someone under the rim versus having someone up on the ball. Is there differences there? I would say we've done a pretty good job of that inbounders man, maybe playing the paint, playing the rim for a couple seconds and then being ready to switch out. So many teams do, Mm -hmm. you know, screen the screener stuff. Right. We've probably had, you know, one, 1,000, two, 1,000 taking the rim and then being able to switch out if we're late to a shooter curling towards the ball. Okay. Our guards have generally done a good job talking that out, like whether they need the help or not. The less you have to bump on that initial cut to Coach's point earlier, if you can jam up any sort of back screen or dive cut in the lane and not have to bump as much, it's easier to get out. I mean, our basic rule is we're going to take away layups first. Yeah. Uh-huh. Take Protect the paint, but don't stay caught there because, you know, a lot of teams are going to put their best shooter some nights on the baseline taking it out so that when it comes in, that person becomes part of the action off of screens either direction. And so to Eric's point, after those first couple seconds, you got to be able to get back to yours and now chase off a screen or switch out depending on you know what we're doing. Staying on that screen, the screener action, Eric, you were talking about jamming up. Are you forcing a direction on that initial back screen? I think we're telling everybody to try to force away from the rim. So like if you're on the ball side elbow, you're jamming on the like from the inside, from the basket side. Uh-huh. And if you get, you know, if they try to set that back screen, you're trying to ride up and over the top. We're not trying to get off and get under the back screen because I just think you get picked off in a crowd too much. Nobody calls moving screens on those plays. Right. So then you're in a position where that guard is having to help more than you want. So, yeah, our general rule is try to get up, get a forearm in that offensive player and push them towards the ball side corner. And that's, I think, you know, if you see a box set, you probably see yep. four people on our team play in that direction, yeah. at least as the screen starts to happen. 
And are you saying that the help or any sort of support will come from the inbounder or is that yes. the defender guarding the screener is she's staying with the screen? She's trying to stay attached as much as she can. We really try to talk about bumping right at the level of the screen, okay, but not getting separation from that shooter. Just because, you know, I think if you've got a Quigley or a Tarasi or somebody like that, even if you try to recover quickly, yeah. they might not even curl. They might just pop. And all they need is that one or two no, right, no. two steps. It's hard to switch out if they're going to pop high. Um, that even applies to even stuff on regular half-court sets on screen, the screener action. If you have a shooting screener, all right, somebody that can shoot the ball as a screener, we cannot afford to back up two or three steps to help on that screen because you're never going to get back to a good shooter. Sure. you got to stay attached. It's somebody else's job to help. You mentioned that you guys have been pretty strong with baseline out of bounds, at least historically guarding it and without giving away any specifics, obviously. But I'm wondering about what types of alignments, though, cause the most headache for you in a scout where, you know, floor flat, a box or some sort of stack or, you know, crazy alignment that we haven't seen. Is there something that might be a little bit more difficult that you really have to talk about? We've never had a ice since we've been here, at least like a six, six physical center. So probably anything where they're trying to get a big to the front of the rim, which is actually kind of, I think why I'm a little surprised at how good we've been at baseline out of bounds. Yeah. But some of it might be that we have an awareness that that is a weak point, you know, especially the balls right there next to the rim. So maybe we actually get a little bit more alertness and urgency knowing that we're going to be in a physical battle there right by the rim. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because I know every year and obviously it's dependent on the other team, what they're running and whatnot. But we've recently talked with some coaches about how when teams have more space underneath the rim where they're maybe even starting like higher towards half court and sprinting into gaps versus just standing stationary, anything like that, that obviously you have to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think, You know, teams do the same thing for us. I think teams that have shooting bigs that can go in any direction from the foul line area, they can back cut, they can pop out, they can curl. I think those are the hardest to guard because you can say you switch, but then all of a sudden you're in a mismatch when the ball comes in. We try to take advantage of teams like that with Elena Deladot or Mieseman. I think the teams that have those, Seattle with Brianna Stewart, or I'm trying to think of somebody off the top of my John Will Jones in Connecticut, those are the hardest ones because you can't just say, okay, we're only going to set them this direction because they're good at everything. Or, think, you know, they'll pop a big to the corner and then run uh, like kind of that Durant action where they got a choice to come off either like the flex screen or the back screen, or they can run to the top Sure. if you back up. That's actually stuff we probably, on a game-to-game basis, spend some spend time covering, time yep. whether we're going to switch out. You know, Seattle does it where they'll screen for it, and they're so good at slipping that you have to know how you're going to switch it. You can't just... And talk it through yeah, completely. You can't be late. Yeah. And those are probably the most difficult ones. If I could just nail down a, one more question for you on this from my end is I don't know if I've ever seen guys' faces glaze over more than when you're trying to walk through the opposing underneath out-of-bounds place during a walkthrough <laughs> where they just are look, thinking about where their lunch is going to be coming from after. How do you keep the players engaged in a scout to go over this stuff so that you don't get beat during the game? I think it's interesting not to go through 50 of them. You know, yeah. I think that's one of the ways. I think you can show someone film, but I think in a shoot-around or a practice to pick the two that you're most concerned about. I, mean, I think generally in a shoot-around for us, we pick one side out and one yeah. baseline out in yeah. a shoot-around. Unless there's something just unique yeah. to that team. Because the other thing is, that, you know, you have 11 other teams to play. We see them often enough that our players kind of know what's coming by who. One of the things that we do, though, is that let's say a team that has multiple different things. We'll just say, okay, when they line up for a cross, 
here's what their favorite thing is. When they're in a box, this is what they're looking for. And kind of get our team used to seeing kind of formations, just like you would in football. All right. You see this formation, what's most likely coming mm-hmm. and do it from that standpoint. The other thing that we've done, not a lot, but occasionally, if you think that there's something really important about a team side out of bounds or baseline out of bounds, do that earlier in the shoot around because you have more. To, if you think that's a big concern for that night, then you got to cover that. The interesting part is, you know, unlike college, we have so many fewer baseline out of bounds plays than college does. Mm-hmm. On some nights, you might only have two or three the entire game, whereas in college, any foul down below or in the lane is going to be a baseline out of bounds. So you have a lot more to cover than we do. Yeah, that makes sense. The real answer to that question is right about that point in the shoot around is when he can feel their focus drifting and he snaps a little bit. So that's that's really okay. how we go. <laughs> <laughs> wake him up a little bit. Yeah, a little bit of fear never hurts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Mike, earlier, you mentioned that end of quarter isolations or pick and rolls. You have a couple specific schemes and obviously, again, don't want you to give up everything, but what are you guys looking to do when yeah, teams will isolate or they're going to run a spread pick and roll late clock end of quarter? I think it depends on the team again, scouting report, but you have people that do favorite certain things and we will vary it from game to game, but pick team A that we say, okay, they really like to come off a ball screen at the top of the floor to the shooter's right hand and they're not good passers back. We may trap that one. Mm -hmm. Others, that screener is a really good shooter. We may switch it because we know they don't have time to go down and post the mismatch. Sometimes we may run up from the baseline and trap and force the pass to a certain area and then know that we're already ready to rotate out. So sometimes you would say, okay, we're going to leave the corner and force them to pass. But we know we're rotating to the corner in the pass. And they don't have enough time at the end of the quarter to go all the way back around and find somebody on the weak side. A lot of it in the quarters has to do with, you know, time on the clock, how quickly a team likes to go. You know, most teams don't want to go until there's, you know, eight seconds or less. So you defensively can cheat a little bit more and do more things because they don't have time to beat the cheat. They're going to run out of time to get the ball swung. And so I think those are the kind of things we do. It's partly knowing personnel leave the worst of the five offensive players out there open, maybe on the weak side and make them find somebody else. Try to speed them up sometimes too. Sure. You know, teams are waiting, go a little bit early, speed them up and make them try to do something before they want to do it. And I know it's probably maybe more of a philosophical debate or question and practice time, but we've talked obviously a lot about man to man, your thoughts, or maybe the conversations you're having, whether and baseline, sideline, and a quarters of going a zone, going a one-three-one, going a two-three, and trying to break the rhythm or blow up a play that way. We did have a zone in this year. I felt like we actually struggled on dead ball situations more with our zone. I, I couldn't really pinpoint why. Seems a little more organized, maybe. Yeah, they actually get to see you in it. But I would say, yeah, like if we, we did it out of timeout somewhere, we could surprise somebody. You know, most coaches, when they call timeouts, are drawing up one of their favorite, you know, plays. Yeah. You know, and I thought that was a good time for us to zone sometimes where you, you know, that they've spent this whole timeout drawing yep. something up. And then the zone is like, you know, you know, players reactions. Oh, my God, coach, you do this play. Now they're zoners. What do we do? I think that's effective. But when you do it a lot, then teams know how well they're probably going to zone coming out of the timeout. So it's a mixture, you know, of that kind of stuff. To his point about, you know, maybe forcing the pet, we actually did that against kind of late quarter ISOs. Is yep. It's not a zone, but it ends up like a zone. Yeah. Like if you know where you're going to rotate up from and you're already going out on a rotation, you're guarding areas more or less. 
we've tried to get that concept in anyway. Like if we're in a trap or a switch, you're basically zoning up the backside regardless. And then it's just a matter of priority. So we haven't zoned much at the end of quarters and stuff, but we have gotten a little more creative on trying to dictate where we're sending the ball, jamming it down the sideline and rotating out as needed, knowing where we're forced in that first pass. I like doing it sometimes on short clock baseline out of bounds plays too, where we know we can force it to a certain area. If we can get them to throw it to the corner and we can attack that late where they don't have time to reverse it. Sure. You know, the other problem is with the pro leagues is that you have the defensive three second rules. So you have to be a lot more clever about how you do it so you don't get caught with somebody standing watching and, you know, all of a sudden, it, you know, there's not a ton of defense for three seconds called in our league, but you don't want it to be at the wrong time. Guys, it's been great so far. We want to transition now to a segment called Start, Sub, or Sit. And what we'll do is we'll give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, sub one, and then sit one. But since we have, you know, father-son duo on the same staff, we're going to play this a little bit differently. We've done this one other time before where the old newlywed game where we'll ask one person what we think the other person's answers will be on it. And then that person can confirm how close or off they were with their answers. In terms of staying employed right here, like I better give an answer. (laughs) Basically a live interview for you right now. Yeah, Yeah, right. (laughs) Blood is not thicker than this start subset game. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So what we'll do is start and I will ask Eric on this one what he thinks Mike's answer would be. And then, Mike, you can follow up after. Do I have <laughs> and, to close my ears? or you No, know? no, no, no. You can you can listen and you can. Uh, yeah, I know you're sitting right next to each other. So if you want to just, you know, give him some heat with a stare, you can do that, too. But the concept for this is areas on the floor to trap. So the start would be where you think Mike would like to trap most. So start, sub, or sit, a post double. So coming and trapping down on a post on a side pick and roll. So trapping on the side or trapping a baseline drive. So the help comes over, you stay, and maybe you trap down the baseline. So start, sub, sit, Eric, what you think Mike's answer would be on those three trapping areas? He's going to start trapping the wing pick and roll, especially if it's a step up. Okay. Can I put that caveat in there? You can. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. He's going to sub the post double. Okay. And he's going to the double on the baseline drive. Okay. Mike, how did he do? He aced it. Hey. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and we've had these discussions so many times. We're probably on the same page. I don't know if he would. If anything, it. you get mad when people overhelp on the baseline drive off yes. the weak side corner and give up the three in the, the draw and kick corner drift three. Yeah. I yeah. So he's got it nailed. I think there's no secrets ball, left in this family. Yeah. This <laughs> that, that, well, that's that's accurate. We'll see if we can find him. Well, then I'd love to start with your start. So Mike, Eric said you would definitely start trapping the wing pick and roll, especially if it's a step up. Could you explain why? Yeah, I think for one thing, you have the sideline as another defender. I think that ball handlers tend to bring it up toward their strong hand. And now when you trap them, you're forcing them to get out of it or pass out of it with their weak hand a lot. Mm -hmm. I think that depending on the size of the screener, take away passing vision. I just think it's, and if they get the ball out, you're not in an immediately vulnerable position where they're going to be at the rim scoring. I think that would be the biggest reason there. And I just think that, you know, we give sometimes too much credit to ball handlers in our league that we probably could trap a little bit more than yeah, we have in the past. Yeah, probably not aggressive enough. Yep. So I think that's the biggest reason. 
on that step up coach, you'll see sometimes where they'll get aggressive, really trying to deny that guard and then they'll kick it to the big, obviously knowing your preference to maybe trap it. How much lane pressure are you looking to put on or denial of that guard? Are you living with a, let them make that pass and we'll play the pick and roll coverage versus trying to blow it up and, you know, seeing how they counter. You're saying we're going to rotate hard to the screener or are we going to let it come out to the big? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, again, it probably depends. If it's a shooting big, we would probably rotate. If it's not, we wouldn't even go hard. We would let them have to try to make the next play. We would tell the big, the trap to go back toward the lane and play soft and then build their way back out. If it's a great shooter, we might not have trapped in the first place. We might have switched it. Mm -hmm. But I think if you're going to aggressively trap, it depends. I would say in general, if you're going to trap that, your whole team should be coming to the ball side of the floor. You should make somebody have to throw a cross-court skip pass to beat you. I definitely think it's easier if that corner is empty. Yep. If they emptied out and you can put three people behind the ball, you can really get more aggressive Yep. because you've got a lot of bodies back there. One quick follow-up with the post-double, and I know it's going to depend on the player, but just over the this could be for either one of you, but just preferring to come on a pass, on a dribble, once they get a piece of the paint. I mean, has, has there been a consistency as to when you might like to come and double? Again, I don't mean this as a bailout. It would be more scouting report. Sure. I think there's a lot of players, host players, who are not particularly good passers off the dribble. Yeah. And so we would probably, if we were going to err, we would err on the side of the dribble. But there are those you can come on right away and they will panic a little bit or dribble out. The best ones probably not. Yeah. The best ones in our league probably see over I mean, yeah, ours. The, the, one, size. the ones that are worth doubling in our league They're so big. aren't going to pan, you know, are not panic. Brittany Grinders looks over the top of you. <laughs> right. All through the playoffs this year, she threw skip passes to people on the weak side because she can see over everybody. You know, sometimes you send a little player to bother her. You're not really bothering her. Right. It's like a little mat down there. You're better off going and trying to attack the dribble. I think the teams that do the best double teams and post-ups in our league are the ones that have extra size on the court. And so that they are sending a long, lengthy person. Seattle did it to us. They played a very big lineup. And they were able to send, you know, Brianna Stewart or Samuelson or somebody that had length and size to the double team and still have another big on the court on the backside to protect. You know, if you send two bigs in our league and you don't have any size anywhere else, you can get pounded on the offensive boards or you're going to give up stuff on the weak side that you don't want to. We did our best double teaming when we had a big lineup on the floor. Moving along our next one. So I'm going to be asking Mike for Eric's answer here. And this is themed about tough to teach. So Tough to teach switching concepts, let's say. So in terms of which is the hardest is the start. So start, sober, sit, the triple switch out of the pick and roll, switching flares or the peel switch. So kind of on the drive, that go switch where they rotate over and you just go off the ball. I think he would say the flare would be the one you would sit. Okay. I would say the triple switch would be the one that you would sub. And I think the peel switch would be the one he would say is the most difficult right now for us right now. We got better. I think that we haven't had to deal with the flare one as much. Maybe it could be the sit one. I don't know. The triple switch is something we've practiced now for a long period of time. I guess it depends on your team. If you have a veteran team, then maybe it's not. I think I'm taking it from the standpoint that we've gotten pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. I'll say that for sure the sitting one would be the flare one. Okay. I think you're right. I don't know that we've switched flares much. 
other than late game. Other than trying to take away threes, and in that case, you're not that worried about the slip at that point. So yeah, I think I'll sit that. I think the peel switch. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know. I think you're right. I think I think uh, three for three. <laughs> Okay. The peel <laughs> we probably I think it's been easier for us on the wing than the top of the floor. Yep. Because you're trying to figure out like who triggers it, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked with NBA coaches and stuff about that. Like if you're gonna peel switch at the top of the floor, is it the big's call or is the guard making the decision? Because I think you're always worried about if it's the guard making the decision that they just get lazy, just want to bail out of there <laughs> and leave it for the big. Yeah. And the big that guard that's attacking the big, ah, big, it's your problem. Yeah, now. you go ahead. I'm not gonna hustle that hard to get back. So We've actually turned some of our peel switching on the wing into triple switching, and we've gotten pretty good at that. But I think that's because triple switching is probably not as hard of a concept, at least for our players. Yeah, we've just got the league in general is good at the triple switching already. We're probably ahead of the league. I mean, I think about the Indiana Fever back in the day. That was like ahead of time. Eric, if I can just maybe if you can walk us through the, the peel triple switch or what. So what is that from a top drive? No, I would say more from like a icing a wing ball screen, right? So you ice it, you're peeling it back. So the guard's peeling back to the screener, and then that screener dives, and we're coming to take it with the next, okay, uh, the bigger defender that's yeah. on the baseline. And the hardest part for us is getting Natasha Cloud to be willing to be bumped out and triple switch because she wants to fight every post up as a guard, <laughs> uh, which we love her for. And then that gets into our scan report, like who are we letting stay on the mismatch versus who are we triple switching mm-hmm. uh, and bumping out? It'll be different next year when we have Alicia Clark back because she can do that triple switch. But we won't but she won't need a triple switch. Yeah. She could do it. She could be the one that comes from the weak side and take it, or she could say, no, I don't need anybody to triple switch. I got the post player because I've defended him long enough. And that was something you know we couldn't do as much this year because we didn't have that size that we've had. We had aerial powers before when we won the championship. Same size, big guard that can switch and deal with appeal switch and take it themselves. Yeah. I think everybody in the league got used to triple switching on horns. And then when we transferred that to like a wing ball screen out of the ice, it made more sense to everybody. Would it be a call from you guys or would it be if the ball handler gets just deep enough, we're automatically switching and looking to, you know, triple switch out. It was generally a call for us based on who the screener is. Uh Like if that screener is a shooter or not, we would tend to, to switch more on the shooter and then if they tried to dive down the mismatch, we'd bump it out. If they want to pop back and stay on the perimeter, then we don't need to triple switch. We'll just stay, you know, single switch matched up. And back to your previous question with a pet peeve. So if that guard drove against the big and they went baseline, I would yell at anybody that ran in <laughs> off a shooter to help on that one when that guard's behind the backboard. So that would add into the pet peeve from before. <laughs> Full circle. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah. Uh, okay, good stuff. We'll, we'll keep moving. We got two more quick ones for you here on Start, Sub, Sit. So we're going to go back to my next one now. I'm going to be asking Eric again for Mike's answer on this. And this is themed misleading game stats. <laughs> After the game, you look at the stat sheet and you're trying to quickly determine who play well or not. And so some of the stats that can be a little misleading from a personal individual player perspective, not full team perspective an individual player's shooting percentage their total rebounds or their assists so start sober sit start would be the most misleading potentially stat i'm inclined to I go, got my i'm inclined that you say the total rebounds is the most misleading but i think you would say that well you're gonna say that because that's that's like your pet peeve is not rebounding percentage okay i'm gonna start total rebounds 
where it started that I would be most, that, most, most misleading. misleading. Okay. I'm going to sub assists and I'm going to sit shooting percentage. Okay. Mike, <laughs> I have a debate. All right. I think the assist one might be the most misleading one only because you can make those same passes and somebody misses wide open shots as a teammate. I think rebounds, unless you're getting your own misses, you know, it's like four on one possession can still be an effort stat. So I might put that in the middle mm-hmm. the shooting percent. He's got that nailed, but I would say the assist can be misleading because I've seen people who have had low assists and made great passes all night. And I've seen people who have made assists because their teammates are rolling that night. They're making layups. But it's kind of a tie. There. I would like to file it's a, a formal complaint because I've heard <laughs> I know, him I know. talking about total rebounds no, versus rebounding percentage for twenty years. I know. No, no, no. I, I agree. I agree with him. The rebound percentage is a lot more valuable. And I take. I know that's different yeah. for an individual yeah. player. For an individual I, I player. But I also don't like rebounds for the ones that we have somebody who went four for eleven and got six offensive rebounds and they were all their own misses because they weren't <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> double whammy. Yeah. Well. <laughs> When Pat and I were discussing this question, it was because, you know, as a coach, you look at the stats right after the game and you make a kind of a quick summation of how players played. And sometimes you go back on the film and like you said, someone might have had two assists and you said they didn't play well, but then there someone missed you know six or seven wide open shots. And it, it's really different. I want to ask about, though, the shooting percentage. And the reason we put that in there is because, you know, there's games where players just don't shoot it well, but maybe the shot selection was great versus games where maybe they shot it okay, but they took tough shots. And sort of the ways that you look at the film and have the discussions after about if someone is or is not struggling shooting the ball. I look at that more as a team thing. I think if you got good shots and they didn't go in, that's still a good team game. Did you get and take good shots? But I do think a player over the course of time, you know, you can't be a 30-something percent shooter and be helping your team that much offensively, maybe on a couple shots. But, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're an integral part of your team's offense, you know, and then that's one of your main roles is to make shots, you shoot 30% in the game, you probably didn't help your team. You might. Now, if they also had six assists and eight rebounds and a couple steals, I would say they did other things to help your team. But the fact of the matter is, you got to make shots. I thought about it more when I was thinking about your answer was you are inclined to leave somebody in the game, maybe a bench player, like you're willing to roll with a bench player if they're in a good rhythm shooting the ball and not just stick to kind of like a program lineup or something. You're willing to look down like, yeah, I know we're supposed to put her back in the game, but she's got it going. Like I'm going to let her play. Yep. Our last one. And again, I'm asking Mike for Eric's answer. And this one is themed around pick and roll spacing concepts, looking at all the ways you can run a pick and roll, empty side, ball screen, step up screen. How many as a successful team do you think you need to really master and focus at? So start, sub or sit two, three, or four, like certain pick and roll spacings and being able to solve them. For offensively. Yeah. For Sorry. Offensively. Oh, well then four, three, and two, I'd start four. Sub three, sit two, because I think you see so many different kinds of defenses that you have to be able to make people pay. Mm-hmm. I think that you have to, well, I'll, I, that's my thing. I'll let Eric. Yeah, I, I can't argue with that. I mean, I think like, especially with the personnel that we've had, we've had a good pick and roll team. So we've had to be really 
versatile. I mean, I remember spending half the time I would spend in the playoffs in, in 2019, just like looking at ways we could manipulate help. No. And we just try every game, try to have a wrinkle for where we put somebody else based on coverage. So I think, you know, you got to be able to go single side, like single side shakeup. You got to be able to go step up. You got to be able to put over. We had Latoya Sanders with an empty corner. We had Elena with corner fill. We had with pick and roll with our the, other big in the corner. Yeah, yeah, like two bigs on the same side because yeah. you would know that the other team, if you did a pick and roll with your five, they would help off the four. Well, if our four is Elena Deladon standing behind the three-point line, we skewed the whole defense. When you said four, three, and two, I yeah, I felt you got kind of got me off the hook because I was at like seven, six, and five. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And you have switching ones. You have all of those situations, you know, the triple switch. You have all those things you got to deal with. Moving the people that, you know, when we played Connecticut, they always have somebody standing at the nail ready to help. So how do you make that person pay? Well, that person might only guard one person on that side. There's no help for them. We've run people through on the play. So it's a chess match every night at the pro level on pick and rolls and what coverages yeah. you can get. We, and and we people. see, like when we've had Elena or even Tina this year, like we see every coverage. She sees every coverage over the course of a year and sometimes within a game. So we have to be able to adapt or we're just going to get bogged down. This question is kind of formed around, you know, being simplistic versus complex in your offense and just like, hey, let's just – I mean, we're going to run them all the course of the game, but let's like master the top pick and roll and knowing all the solutions and just, yeah, kind of the theory or, you know, the, the debate that goes on between, yeah, spending time, like you said, to, you know, we got to be able to do all of them versus, you know, let's just always try to get to a mid ball screen and just go from there. I think we've probably spent as much time as we do with alignments with knowing our own personnel. And I think that's like angles, you know, we had, we played, two point guards a lot when we had Christy Tolliver and Natasha Cloud, and you couldn't screen for them the same way. Mm -hmm. We knew the coverage would be different based on who was in it. So we had to get really good at anticipating the one step ahead. Like they're going to try to go under. So we're going to adjust our angle like this, which means we need this next person spaced a little bit differently. Yeah. I remember standing with Christy Tolliver in training camp that year going, we have to try to be the best offensive team in the league which means we have to like take a lot of care about like literally where we're standing. Like if you're not in the action, like you cannot be just convenient with your standing and your spacing. You actually have to be deliberate about I'm standing here because of this. And I, I can't thought, be I, this close to my teammate. I yeah. have to be farther away. And we got really meticulous. Like we used our pre-practice time to, to talk about that stuff. We spent time on it, practice shoot arounds. Like we just, we got, some would call me obsessed with it. I probably got a little borderline obsessed with it that year. I will tell you, though, yeah. to win a championship in our league, and the NBA will tell you the same thing, to win a championship, you have to be so good at that. It's more schemes, you know, to your point about, yeah, we got to be really good at one or two things, but I think that to be the best team, you got to be really good at a lot of things offensively. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, guys, you're off the start, sub, or sit, hot seat. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for going yeah. through and playing. And you definitely have some good staff synergy. Um, for sure. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> we were far too, far too agreeable, agreeable. That's not how our meetings are. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so thank you for going through that. We've got uh, one more question for you each. But before we ask each this last question, thank you very much for coming on and spending yeah. the morning with us and going through all these things. It's been a lot of fun. So thank you. You bet. I feel like you. I made it. This is, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got one more question for each of you. We'll start with Eric. I know that your coaching career is off to a great start and you're able to be at the WNBA level. Wondering what 
the best investment in your coaching career has been? I think, and I know this is maybe not exactly how you mean it. I've been really, really lucky to have spent a lot of time, even as I was growing up around great coaches. And that was, you know, definitely one of the perks of being his son. You know, I got to grow up around awesome coaches in Omaha and the CBA and then Milwaukee on that staff. I was young. It's not like I was doing it from a professional standpoint, but I got to ride the games with Terry Stotts, be around Ron mm-hmm. Adams, people like that. And then Scott Hawk and Bernadette Maddox in Connecticut. And then I think, you know, in terms of me investing is the people on our staff here, that the coaches that I've gotten to work with, it's a testament to him that we've essentially kept the majority of the same staff together. Like nobody's left other than for head coach, head coach or bigger, or, you know, big time jobs elsewhere. So I think to kind of bring it back to what we talked about at the start, like in a tough season, like we just had those relationships that you have with the people you're working with, that you know, everybody's intentions and their heart is in the right place and that you're just going to try to solve problems together and you're not going to worry about who gets credit, who gets blame. I don't think you can get to that point without investing in each other just on a long-term ongoing basis. So that's just been something I've been fortunate with my whole life. Absolutely. So Mike, to you, to close here, you coach with Eric, obviously on the same staff. And I know your daughter, Carly, is also division one assistant, I believe, uh, Minnesota. So you have both in coaching. I'm wondering as a father, what are the main things about coaching that's kept you in it for so long, NBA, WNBA, that you've hoped to pass down to both of them as coaches about, you know, your love of the game or the most important things about coaching? I really wanted to answer his question too. So I might give you a little bit of both. <laughs> I think it goes together. I think when I was a young coach, I was around a lot of good coaches also. I mean, I was very, very fortunate to have coach Wooden as a mentor in many ways. I worked his camps and I did that. I had high school coaches I worked for when I first started out that taught me how to scout, teach me how to do those things. And so what I learned was, and I worked camps every summer for a lot of different coaches and with coaches and tried to ask questions and pick their brain. And it actually led to my first MBA job because I worked Jerry West camp and I got to know Stan Albeck and Jack McCloskey, who were his assistants, and they were my entry into the NBA with the Lakers. But what I learned from that, what I've tried, I think, pass on to everybody I've been around is that you have an opportunity every day to learn from somebody, to soak up something. And I look at some young coaches now and, you know, they want everything to come quickly. You know, I want to move up. I want to do this. They're always looking for the next job. And I think we forget sometimes there's a whole, just like going to school for anything else or to be a musician or an artist, there's a lot of hours that go into just kind of perfecting your craft, whether it's watching film or getting on the court or going to clinics. I did that when I was young and it gave me context and contacts. And so I learned from a bunch of different people. And then I also learned that you can't be somebody else. You have to be yourself. And so I think for my kids and other coaches have been around me, They see that I have a passion for the game and I'm 71 years old and I still want to keep coaching. I don't know how long, but I love what I do. I get up enjoying going to work and you got to work at it, but you can't be in a hurry to be something else and you got to be who you are. And so, you know, I was worried when they first talked about being coaches, I was going to try to talk them out of it because it's a hard business, but I saw that they both had passion. It took a while for me to understand that, but you have to have a passion for what you do. And 
somehow I've been able to maintain that for a long period of my life. I enjoy going to do my job every day. It's almost like going to do your hobby every day. I, and I would say from our perspective, it always seemed even, you know, we'd see you after a tough loss or whatever, and obviously you're down, but it always seemed enjoyable. The job always seemed enjoyable. Otherwise, probably would, would not have gravitated towards it. Yeah. And, and I think that you have to have this passion for what you do. But I also think you have to be legitimately who you are. And I think the other part of it is, and it's a little bit of an aside, but it kind of keeps you, you have to constantly be honest with your players and be adaptable with your players. I've gone through a bunch of different generations of players. When I was coaching early on, there was no social media. There was no internet. There was none of that. And so in going through this, I have to understand that the players I'm coaching now are not the players I was coaching 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And Eric is a good reminder for me. And my daughter is a good reminder for me. It works the other way. They help remind me, hey, you're dealing with something different right now. You can't stay where you were. You have to keep you know, getting better at what you do or understanding who you're coaching. And I think that's, at the end of the day, all the best coaches, I think, are really great teachers. And, you know, I know Coach Wooden used to say this to me all the time. He said, the game is like you've practiced for months to put on a play. Now you just got to go let them do what they do. You've got to trust that what you've done to get them there is the right thing. And I think that's the essence of coaching. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with coaches Mike and Eric Tebow. Please make sure to check out slappingglass.com for more information on the free weekly newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, daily videos, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.